0: The theme for this morning, which I would simply say, is for us to think about the concept of kingdom. Uh, Like, what does kingdom mean when we speak about kingdom? What are we referring to? Um, The Bible is full of references to kingdom. And uh, just sort of maybe to help uh, prepare our hearts and minds, I have a few... Well, one is a quote, and I think it's up there already, Um, and then there are a few passages of scripture, and then there's a little short um, video clip from Francis Chan, so just sort of take time to read through those, take your time, um, and then I'll share a few thoughts.
1: I remember when I was uh, a a new believer and I would hear phrases like the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Not even as a new believer. Honestly, it was for decades as a believer. I would read in the Bible, like kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, like, it, it, it meant nothing to me, the word kingdom. Um, and I'm guessing it's true for a lot of people mm-hmm. because it just becomes this, I can't relate to it. I've never been under a king. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a country where there's a president. You feel free to obey him, disobey him, whatever, <laughs> you know, mock him. Yeah. I, you know this, And so this concept we get in scripture of the kingdom, I, it's so good that we study this because we live in a different place. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a king is that, you know sometimes we go, okay, I'm so glad that Jesus is Lord because I'm under his protection, mm. but does that but do you understand that you're you're under a king's protection, but you're also under his rule mm. like they they didn't separate that back then. they were mm. glad that this person was king, but that meant that they were going to obey this king either there yeah. were uh, or there were consequences. Yeah. and so it is a very important lesson to understand what does it mean that we're a part of the kingdom of God mm. now? He is truly our king, and he protects us, he loves us, he cares for us, um, but we also come under his authority. And
0: There's more to that uh, little clip, obviously, it, it sort of ended in a somewhat abrupt way, but um, the idea or the conversation about uh, kingdoms, I would say, is, is one of the overarching themes of the Bible, that... The conversation about kings and kingdoms is woven throughout the Old Testament right through the New Testament. And so uh, one question I want to ask this morning at the beginning is that are we actually living with a kingdom mindset? Um, A little bit of what Francis Chan was probably referring to Are we aware that we live under a king when we say Jesus is Lord? That there comes with that this idea of how then shall we live? To some extent, when you read that verse in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is this sense that there is a kingdom that already exists in which the kingdom of heaven is there in all of its perfection. And there is a kingdom of heaven that God would seek to have lived out through those who acknowledge him as God and as king. And so there's this idea of kingdom that we sort of, in a sense, are called to live in here on earth, but it is truly a kingdom that also is a kingdom of anticipation, that at some point, the return of Jesus we will experience the kingdom of heaven in the perfection that I think the Lord's prayer also refers to. So I think it's fair to ask the question that when we pray, thy kingdom come, are we simply praying about the return of Jesus, at which time the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Are we simply thinking of the prize or the reward that lies ahead for those who persevere? So in a way it's a question, are we just sort of hanging in there until we receive that which for which we have been called? There is a time, and I think about this quite often, when we will exchange all the worries, um, the preoccupations, uh, the imperfections, the disappointments, uh, all the sins of this life, those things that at times bog us down, that we will exchange those for the perfection of eternity. I think it is that great hope that we hang on to as children of God. And it's a beautiful hope, to trade in what Paul calls the corruptible, talking about the the weakness of the human body, and even at times the weakness of the human will, we will trade the corruptible for that which is incorruptible, that we will put behind those things that we maybe have struggled with throughout this life, and we will lay hold of that for which Jesus lay hold of us, which is the kingdom of God in all its perfection, in all its glory, and we will be with the God who created us in the way that we were intended to be. And Paul often refers to this hope as a living hope. And I don't know exactly what was, let's say, in the heart of Paul when he wrote that. But I believe that there is something about the hope that lies ahead. And there is something about the hope that Paul says dwells within us. That is meant to be lived out here on earth. In a way that the kingdom of heaven, even with its imperfections here on earth, can be lived out in the hearts and minds of the people of God. And you might say lived out in a way through the church, which really is an expression of God's kingdom here on earth. What does it mean to live as a kingdom of God kind of people here on earth? The concept of a kingdom, as Francis Chan said, it's a bit... There's a, so a bit of an old-fashioned notion to it because we don't actually experience life that way within a kingdom here on earth. Um, kingdom comes from the two words, king and his or her domain. And today we might call it a ruler and his or her country. And today, rulers go by many titles. There are still certainly nations of the world that have kings and queens, but uh, others are called chancellors or supreme rulers or presidents or prime ministers or sultans. And those holding those titles within the concept of earthly kingdoms also exercise a certain level of authority, leadership, Power within the context of the kingdoms of this world. Now today, generally speaking, people do not bow down before their rulers, whatever you might call them, as subjects. Unless that ruler, regardless of the title that they might have, act as a dictator. And we almost automatically, when we think about that, we think about specific countries in the world where their ruler, even if they technically is not called a dictator, in their actions, that's how they rule. People in those countries do have the sense of having to bow down to them. And generally, those are countries every one of us are thankful that we do not live in. In most democratic countries... Our expectations of our leaders is exactly the opposite. That we actually expect the leaders of our countries, whatever we call them, to serve us. That we don't live as subjects under Harper or under Trudeau. We actually expect them to serve us. And it's part of what you might say the definition of democracy is. Of the people, for the people, by the people. And I think it was Kennedy, I believe, who said, he asked the question, at one point in the history of the United States, as a rallying cry, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do, for your country. And in essence, I would think the only question we really ask now of our country is the first half of that. What can my country do for me? In a very real way, we've lost the last half of that rallying cry and that our expectations of our earthly leaders has become quite self-focused, self-serving, quite individualistic. And I think our earthly leaders have this very difficult, if not impossible task of protecting what we might consider our rights and freedoms, of protecting those things that you think, well, these are things that we as a nation value, when there is actually no universal agreement about what those things actually mean. And I think increasingly the church is finding um, that the values that are sometimes expressed within the country we live in increasingly seem to be quite different than the values that we might think and believe are values within the kingdom of God. And so I think inevitably the leaders of this world will... Always disappoint us. Um, There are leaders that come to power and people put great hope in the dawning of a new day. And inevitably, they disappoint. And another ruler, whatever the title given, and there will be others that say, okay, now a new day has dawned. And then that leader disappoints. The leaders of this world and its kingdoms will, I think, in some way always disappoint us. The kingdoms themselves of this world will always disappoint us. And I believe one of the key messages within the talk about kingdom within the Bible is do not get too consumed about and by the kingdoms of this world. The Old and New Testaments make reference to kingdoms or nations, but often in a very different way. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is essentially a picture of the people of God within the context of an earthly kingdom. It was a kingdom in the Old Testament that involved land, that involved politics. It was a kingdom at which different wills and different agendas were always at play other than the will of God for his people. Much of the Old Testament in this conversation about the people of God within the context of an earthly kingdom is difficult to read. It involves at times an awful lot of aggression because you might say, well, there were borders to protect. Evil kings within the story of Israel in the Old Testament, often reigned. And very often in the Old Testament, you'll hear the stories about the king did evil in the sight of the Lord. The king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And under their reign, people did what was right in their own minds. And the result of that, I think, is that the Old Testament, we read it and we see this often, graphic violence and death. And in a very real way, I believe it's an example of what happens when the people of God exchange an earthly king as opposed to the God who says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so I think we need to always read the Old Testament with that understanding that the children of God, in that context, desired a king. Like it was like God is not enough. We don't fully trust God. We want a king because when we look around us, all the other nations seem to have kings. The result of that was not. And so I think when we read the Old Testament, we have to understand that really it's an expression of God's people exchanging God for an earthly king. And the result of that is much of the difficult stuff we read in the Old Testament. And I would say we cannot blame God for it. We can blame decisions of man who wanted to exchange God for something else. The New Testament is actually the fulfillment of the old. And I. this may not be a perfect way of thinking about it, but I I think when we read the Bible, we have to be somewhat careful not to read it as a flat text. I think we need to read the Bible... Especially the Old Testament as leading and pointing to something greater. So we read the Old Testament really as a story of God creating something new in the person of Jesus Christ. That the Old Testament points to. Not only Jesus, it points to an entirely different concept of kingdom. We sometimes call it Old Covenant, Old Arrangement in the Old Testament. New Covenant, New Arrangement in the New Testament. New Covenant is Jesus. New Covenant is the kingdom that Jesus talked about. It's no longer a story about kingdom defined by or restricted by borders. It's no longer a story about having to defend or fight for borders. It's not a kingdom of politics or political affiliation at all. It's a spiritual kingdom in which God calls to himself people from every tribe every nation, you might say every kingdom of the world God calls people to enter the spiritual kingdom in which Jesus is our Lord. It's a kingdom of peace. And I think The new covenant, this new arrangement in and through Jesus is such an incredible contrast to the Old Testament. A kingdom of peace where you might say in this kingdom, people are willing to die for this kingdom rather than kill in order to try to protect. It's a kingdom Jesus came to establish and it's the kingdom into which we have been called and we are called in this kingdom sons and daughters of the most high God. Jesus talked and taught often about his kingdom. His message was generally not understood even by those who walked with him and listened to him carefully. He would speak about the kingdom, probably to a crowd. After that was over, the disciples would say, Jesus, what are you referring to? What are you talking about? His message was also manipulated to mean something else. Yet the disciples knew that when Jesus talked about his kingdom, his version of kingdom was completely different from the kingdoms of this world. And I think if you were to sit down sometime this week and read Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount... That chapter paints a very clear, vivid um, picture of the kingdom of God in such stark contrast to how you would talk about kingdoms of this world. And if you go to Matthew 13, there's another chapter where Jesus spends virtually that whole chapter talking about his kingdom And making kind of kingdom comparisons. He likens the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. And he likens the kingdom of God to yeast. Uh, It's a very interesting way to talk about kingdoms. His message is, you know, in this kingdom... Out of something very small, and you might say insignificant. One man, the Lord Jesus, and 12 disciples who had spent their life in other endeavors until they met Jesus, has created an amazing kingdom into which we still live and into which God continues to call people. That out of such small beginnings, something incredible continues to happen in and throughout all the kingdoms of this world. In that chapter, he also talks about the kingdom of God as a treasure buried in a field or as a pearl. And he is saying that this kingdom is so incredible that you would do everything in your power to buy that field, to have a hold of that pearl. And to me, it talks about the incredible blessings and privilege that are ours when we are citizens of the kingdom of God. But even as Jesus refers to this new kingdom, he also makes it clear that God rules supreme over the kingdoms of this world. And uses them, I would say, to accomplish his purposes in ways that we do not understand And I would say in ways that we should probably not waste our time speculating about. But that God rules over the kingdoms of this world. The account of the crucifixion of Jesus really is such a powerful account of what I would call the clash of two understandings of kingdoms. the Jewish religious leaders sought to portray Jesus as a real, genuine, political threat to the Romans, and specifically to Pilate. Say, don't be fooled by his kingdom, talk. He actually poses a threat to you in your kingdom here on earth. And in John 19, Pilate says this to Jesus, Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or the power to, say, crucify him? I have the power to sense of life and death over you. And he says, Jesus, don't you realize that? And Jesus says to Pilate, in effect, yes, that's true. But you only have the power over me because it was given to you by God. John 18 recounts a very interesting kingdom conversation, and I want to read it. Then Pilate went back inside. This is sort of what you might say negotiations happening. Then Pilate went back inside and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. And it's funny, Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate asked. Your own people and their leading priests brought you here. Why? Why? What have you done? And then Jesus answered, I am not an earthly king. And the sentence that follows that. If I were, my followers would have fought when I was arrested by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate replied, you are a king then. You say that I'm a king and you are right, Jesus said. For I was born for that purpose. And I came to bring truth to the world. And all who love the truth will recognize that what I say is true. So it says, if Jesus says to Pilate, Yes, you have the authority, you have the power over me in terms of my physical life at this moment. But it's so interesting that in so doing, sentencing Jesus to death on the cross, he did not defeat the kingdom of God, he ushered it in. I think it's such an amazing way to think of the crucifixion that an earthly kingdom might have thought, okay, we've put this threat aside, and in reality, they had given birth to the kingdom of God. Crown of thorns was placed on his head. Purple robe was placed on his shoulders. That crown and that robe was meant as a sign of ridicule, as a reason to mock him. But in truth, in a very, you might say, ironic way, it was actually his coronation. That this charade, you might call, of justice, that this mockery was actually establishing and ushering in the kingdom of God. And we know that Jesus' death was swallowed up in victory. It's the victory of the resurrection. And that victory of the resurrection is such a kingdom statement. It's such a kingdom truth that death is actually swallowed up in victory in the kingdom of God. And it is that great pearl. That we hang on to as citizens of an eternal kingdom. Nations are going to come and go. Leaders in this world are going to come and go. And God's hand is actually at work in all of that. And over all of that. And while kingdoms rise and fall. God continues faithfully to build his kingdom in the hearts and minds of people who are willing to accept Jesus as Lord. Earthly kingdoms and earthly leaders are not going to point a nation in the direction of God through policy or legislation. Don't put unrealistic hopes in earthly leaders. Their role is actually to lead an earthly nation. Don't put your trust in any political party. Their role is to establish stability, safety, and rule of law within the kingdoms of this world. But there is great danger in trying to make these two kingdoms somehow compatible. There are many earthly political leaders who manipulate the church for political gain. Where the people of God are seen as a potential huge block of political support. And so I think politicians manipulate people within the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of Jesus. And at times, there are those in the church eager to align themselves politically. And I believe so strongly that if we seek to mix those two kingdom agendas, it is the agenda of the kingdom of this world that will win. The call for us as God's people is to be those who are set apart. Set apart for God. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that speaks directly into the danger of getting too cozy with the leaders of earthly kingdoms. I spent... um, Sometime this week, um, I've spent less time in Starbucks than I used to. More time at Highway 33 in my little office, but I was at Starbucks. And I was thinking, we have the kingdoms of this world. And we have the kingdom of heaven. And I know that while I was sitting in Starbucks, I was doing this with my hands. And I thought, well, you bring the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God together. And unless this means you are praying for the kingdoms of this world, or unless this means you are praying to be clear in your life about the kingdom of God, this is not the way we are meant to operate. But I do believe if this represents the kingdom of God, kingdoms of this world, so you might say Canada, I believe the kingdom of heaven and of Jesus is meant to infiltrate it, but not do this with it. I don't know if that illustration makes any sense, but we are called to be in, but not of. We are called to be ambassadors within the earthly kingdom's But our citizenship that we hold on dearly to is citizenship of heaven. So I think in a way when Jesus talks about his kingdom, it's actually saying to us, relax. My kingdom is not of this world, and the world cannot defeat it. So relax. The kingdoms of this world can make things difficult for us as children of God. The kingdoms of this world can put pressure on us to buy into its values. And that increasingly is becoming a very real um, attack. And I may speak about that more in a couple of weeks. The kingdoms of this world can mock us. The kingdoms of this world can choose to persecute us. They can even choose to kill us. But in this kingdom, death has been swallowed up in victory. It's a kingdom that you and I have been called to. It's the kingdom we belong to. It is the kingdom in which our true and lasting citizenship is held. And if the leaders of this world will in some way always disappoint us, even at times countries you might say, ooh, I expected more from that country, and now look what's happening there. Countries will disappoint us. But it's interesting that the Bible says they who put their trust in God will not be disappointed. Romans ten eleven. And this is where our allegiance as children of God must lie. And I think it's a valid question to ask, how are we doing as his subjects? Does he rule in our lives? Do we listen to his voice amongst the many other voices that are shouting at us? Do we seek to live as new creations within the context of, Of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, There's a quote that I used at the very beginning. uh, From Jason Hood. At the very beginning it was about. At times the people of God seem more. um, Concerned about somehow being involved in the kingdoms of this world. Than they are in Jesus. what, What do you. What are you asking me to do within your kingdom? This is a quote from the same fellow in the same article. He said, God's kingship needs to become more of a root for our lives. So if you talk to me about kingship, you talk to me about rulers, in my mind what I need to think about is the kingdom of God and the rule of Jesus If our perception of God as king is accompanied by wonder and awe at his greatness and his glory, we talked about that last week, and we learn to trust the author of our story, our nation's story, and all stories, we realize that the great story that shapes our lives is not our particular vision for Canadian or American democracy or freedom or prosperity, but the story of a global kingdom of which you and I are part as children of God that will bring the freedom and glory of the children of God. But there's so much about the kingdoms of this world that pulls us in and I think so much about when we talk about thy kingdom come God is like God pulling us in a different direction. So think about What it means to be a child of God. God's desire has always been that his people would see him and obey him as king. To put their trust in him and live under his reign. The hope that lies within us is meant to motivate us to live on earth in a way that reflects the values of the kingdom of God. I think it's a mindset that changes how we live out every day of our lives. That we live them out as new creations in Christ Jesus. That we are people willing to have our minds continually renewed. That we refuse to be conformed to the thinking and patterns of this world. And that we ask God to continue to transform us into his holy nation and his holy people. You know, it's a a way of thinking, I think, that often challenges us to occasionally look at our goals in life and maybe to adjust them. To look at our uh, priorities in life and sometimes examine them. And maybe to at times rethink our bucket lists Maybe we need to adjust them a little bit so they look like they have kingdom of God focus. If we do, the Bible says we will not be disappointed. In fact, we will find fulfillment. To live as a holy people set apart in order to declare the praises of God who brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. We are called to be ambassadors of a kingdom that is not of, a, of this world, but a kingdom that this world so desperately needs to hear about. And that's the call in our lives. As it did last Sunday, and I'm going to ask that we do it again, and I hope it's okay with you um, to stand into. to just to say the Lord's Prayer together as a church to to God our Father. And I have to make one little... <laughs> uh, what's the right word? A bit of an explanation, maybe. Uh, it, it's one of these parts of the Bible, like Psalm 23, where so many people know it so well, and so many people know it because they've pretty much always recited one... Version one translation, so we get really used to thys and thous, and we say it without even thinking. And uh, I heard it last weekend, and I kind of smiled. Not that it's that terribly important, but there is a line in the Lord's prayer that says, "Lead us not into temptation." And it's so interesting sometimes how these things. Um, occur uh, probably well over a month and a half ago. I, I read articles about how the Pope was seeking to actually adjust how we say that line. And as I was reading some of his thoughts about that, I thought, you know, I have always struggled with that line. Like, why would ask, we be asking God not, you know, lead us not into temptation When there's so much else in scripture that seems to say God does not do that. That maybe we need to read that line a bit differently. And it was last Sunday after church where Mike came down and talked to me. And made reference to the Pope and this change of maybe how we do the line. So I have taken the liberty of Changing that line from saying, Lead us not into temptation, you'll probably see it up there. It says, Don't let us yield to temptation. And I say this with a bit of uh, caution almost. Uh, because I read, as I read about that from others who say, Well, the Pope has no reason to suggest that we should just change things. Or the Pope's interpretation of that is not right. And I heard, you know, people make what I would consider some valid comments that occasionally God allows us to be tempted. And, and there are stories in the Bible where you can say it's almost like there was a conversation with Jesus and the devil about can I, can I test that person? And the answer is given is yes. Yes. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But I, I think that the meaning that I think is most relevant to us, I think is better said, don't let us yield to temptation than to say, lead us not into temptation. Because I think it gives us a wrong picture of God our Father. I, I cannot see my own dad ever intentionally trying to lead me into temptation. Anyway. Anyway. Too much said on that, but um, can I invite you to stand and maybe the uh, the worship team can come up and I would just simply like us to end this morning by together as a church um, saying this prayer and I don't want to say reciting it, I just want to say say it, say it to God and say it together. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.